The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Now, since Christ has died, now we Gentiles who never, never, never had the law of Moses are saved through grace alone. We are now not under the principle of law, but we are under grace. There are some in the midst of Protestantism who try to put the whole church back under the law of Moses, where it never was at any time in its history. But those who are saved by God from among the Gentiles, as I and as many of you, we are necessarily saved under an entirely different set of conditions. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled Free from the Law. Many times a football team will dominate for three quarters and seem to have the game well in hand. Suddenly, the other team rallies late in the fourth quarter and wins an unlikely victory. Many times we may appear to be dominated and defeated in our battle against sin, but the Bible declares that sin shall not have dominion over the believer. How can you be confident of ultimate victory over sin and death? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 6, and we focus on verse 14. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Free from the Law. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for thyself, for thou art our God, and there is none like unto thee the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Through faith in the grace which thou hast provided for us in the Savior, we have been accepted in him, thy beloved, and can come to thee with holy boldness by the way that thou hast opened on Calvary. It is thus we come, asking that thou shalt bless the word in this hour to every listening heart. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text at this time continues in our study of the book of Romans, reaching at the present time Romans 6.14, where we read, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Now, this would be a great text if it said merely that sin need not have dominion over us. That in itself would be a glorious prospect. For us to realize that such provision had been made for us in the eternal plan of God's love and that there was a possibility of triumph in the life of the Christian. 
But our text says something far greater than this. The language is not capable of a double interpretation. It states flatly that sin shall not have dominion over us, since we are not under the law, but under grace. Now, having established the fact of the statement, we now proceed to find out its meaning. We admit immediately that no human being lives without the presence of sin within the life. We know from both the Bible and from experience that there is no such thing as sinless perfection. We're aware that any man who teaches such doctrine is a victim of self-deception, even as the Holy Spirit declares in 1 John 1, 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Perhaps I can illustrate the true meaning by an example from a well-known athletic event and the rules governing it. Many people have seen wrestling matches on television. Perhaps not all are aware of the rule which determines the outcome of the struggle. As the contestants writhe and agonize in the wrestling ring, one may appear to be underneath the other, but the referee does not declare the bout ended. He gets down on his knees and looks well at the body that's seemingly near the floor. And a moment later, the one who has been on the bottom may be on top and may be the ultimate winner. For the rule is the following. In order to be declared the winner, one wrestler must force the body of his opponent to the position where two shoulders and one hip or two hips and one shoulder are pinned to the mat. At times, one man may have the other so that both hips are touching, but neither shoulder is. Or both shoulders are touching, but neither hip is. Or one shoulder and one hip is touching, but the other two are not. Now you can readily see there is no dominion in such a case, no lordship and no mastery. Now I'm sure that any honest believer in the Lord Jesus Christ will accept the fact that there have been times when he has been grievously thrown and even sorely wounded, even as one wrestler may seize the other and throw him over his shoulder in a mighty crash. But there is no mastery. The believer does not relax and allow sin to lord it over him completely and there is for him a position of triumph into which he enters. If final proof were needed that this verse does not teach the complete eradication of the old Adamic nature, it would lie in the juxtaposition of this verse with the one in the preceding paragraph of our text. For here in verse 14, it says, Sin shall not have dominion over you. But just two verses before, it says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Now, if sin's presence were completely banished from the life of believer, it would be fruitless to say, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. If we follow the great reformer in his commentary, we shall understand the simple grandeur of this text. Calvin points out that there is here offered to the believer a strong consolation which is to keep an individual from fainting in his efforts after holiness because of his awareness of the presence of sin within his nature. You see, the Christian has been exhorted to devote all his faculties to God as instruments of righteousness. But he knows that he still has within him the corrupt ruins of his fallen nature, and he can go forward only as a lame man walks. What is to keep us from despair, then? Why shall we not become despondent when we are forced to take notice of the smoldering fires of sin within us? The answer is that we are no longer tested by the strict rule of law but that God, remitting all the penalties of our impurity, accepts us in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The yoke of the law cannot do otherwise than tear and bruise those who carry it. It hence follows that the faithful must flee to Christ and implore him to be the defender of their freedom. And as such, the Lord exhibits himself, for he underwent the bondage of the law, to which he was himself no debtor, for this end, that he might, as the apostle says, redeem them who are under the law. The progress of the Christian, therefore, will be like that of the noble warriors of Gideon, who are described in one of the most touching phrases of the Old Testament. Gideon had been victorious with his little band of 300 chosen over the army of the enemies of Midian. But one of the tribes of Israel, Ephraim, was proud and jealous and started to upbraid the victor. Gideon didn't care who received the credit so long as Israel was delivered. He gave the praise to those who wanted praise. And then he turned to follow up his victory and bring full rout to the defeated enemy. The story runs thus in Judges 8, 4. And Gideon came to Jordan and passed over, he and the 300 men that were with him, faint yet pursuing. There could be no finer phrase to describe the perseverance of the saints. Faint yet pursuing. Now this can well set forth the thought in our text. Sin shall not have dominion over you. The forecast of a principle. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. The exhortation of practice. So the sense is now clear. For the apostle intended to comfort us. Lest we should be wearied in our minds. While striving to do what is right. Because we still find in ourselves many imperfections. For how much soever we may be harassed by the stings of sin, it cannot yet overcome us, for we are enabled to conquer it by the Spirit of God. Now before proceeding to the consideration of the last half of our text, I wish to digress for a moment to show a great inconsistency among many present-day Calvinistic theologians. Many of the outstanding men of this group strongly criticized the system of notes on the King James Version of the Bible, prepared by the late Dr. C.I. Schofield and widely known as the Schofield Reference Bible. Time and again I have read attacks on these notes by theologians who take one line which, I admit, was unfortunately worded and seek to destroy the whole magnificent structure for one very understandable flaw. For I am convinced that among all helps to Bible study, there has never been devised any work which can bring a spiritual babe to spiritual maturity faster than the Bible with the Schofield references. It is true, however, that in his note on law and grace under the first chapter of the Gospel according to John, Dr. Schofield says, quote, As a dispensation, grace begins with the death and resurrection of Christ. The point of testing is no longer legal obedience as the condition of salvation, unquote. Now, I quite agree that it would have been better if Dr. Schofield had said the point of testing is no longer legal obedience as the illustration of salvation. But Schofield knew, as all honest theologians know, that salvation has always been by grace, and that, strictly speaking, grace is no longer grace if it has any condition. Therefore, strictly speaking, we cannot say the point of testing is no longer legal obedience as the condition of salvation. But 
In his commentary on the chapter we're now studying, the great John Calvin himself makes exactly the same type of statement. He says something which, taken out of the context of his whole work, would make him repudiate all that he really stood for. For the following is taken from Calvin on our text. We are no longer subject to the law as requiring perfect righteousness and pronouncing death on all who deviate from it in any part, period, unquote. Now, any honest theologian must understand that Calvin meant something quite different from what he said. For what he says is, any one of us who deviate from the law in any part have death pronounced upon us. Well, that, technically speaking, simply is not true, for Jesus Christ has died. And Calvin meant certainly he meant that such death could be transferred to a substitute who could die in the place of the sinner who deviated. And to be honest, the same theologian must accept Dr. Schofield's statement in the same manner. It is a vicious practice to lift a single sentence from the writings of any man and use it to destroy a thesis for which his entire life was spent. We will never so mistreat Calvin, and we must not allow Calvin's totalitarian followers to mistreat others in this way. And we now proceed to the last half of our text. It is to be noted that both halves are introduced by the word for, F-O-R. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under law, but under grace. The first phrase is the announcement of the proclamation of a change of sovereigns. We recently witnessed a change of sovereigns from one ruler of Britain to another, and that is what this text announces. Sin shall not have dominion over you, shall not be king anymore. But the second phrase is the announcement of the resulting change in condition. I believe we can come even nearer the truth of our text by an illustration from our own American life. The Negroes were largely in slavery, and the war between the states had, as one of its byproducts and results, the freeing of this population. Their emancipation gave to all of them the immediate status of full citizenship. Some returned to practical slavery, but not because they were not free. Some, like Booker Washington, George Washington Carver, Ralph Bunch, rose to the social and political equivalent of sainthood. The greatest enemies of Negro advance were those who presumed that because they were free, they could do absolutely as they pleased in all circumstances. In the parallel with the Christian life, it must be realized that we were all in slavery to sin, but that we, who have been born again through Christ, we have been emancipated and need not live in bondage. For tyranny shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under slavery but under freedom. There has come what we might call a constitutional change in our status, and this is the sole guarantee of our liberties in Christ. Now, you who have become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are not under law. This does not mean that we are lawless, far from it, but it is describing our blessed position under grace just as a Negro could never rise to any heights whatsoever so long as he was living under a reign, a regime that was slavery, so the Christian can rise to no spiritual heights whatsoever so long as he is living under a regime that is legalism. 
Now, it becomes urgently necessary at this point to find out what we mean by the term law. We shall discover that there are at least five different meanings for the term law in this one epistle to the Romans. And it's always necessary to know which phase of the word we are speaking of. First, the term in its widest sense means the whole legal principle. Law as applied to any man. Any law applied to any man, Jew or Gentile. If the term were used in this sense only, it would include freedom from the Roman law and would include the lawlessness in those who are not Christians. Then in the second place, the term law, especially when used with the article and called the law, is a Jewish term and refers to the law given by God through Moses. This use of the word gives rise to a third meaning, which is rather a subdivision of the second. For the law, the law, may refer in general, our second definition, to the whole body of law given through Moses, or our third definition, to that part of the law which we sometimes call the ordinances, including the dietary laws, the sanitary laws, and all the rest of the Levitical code, as distinguished from the Ten Commandments. And these two phases are sometimes distinguished by the terms moral law and ceremonial law. The fourth and fifth applications of the term law in this epistle refer to the principles which work within the lives of believers and unbelievers. We find in the eighth chapter reference to the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And we discover that this is the principle which the Lord introduces in order to replace the law of sin and death. When we read the epistle to the Romans, we must be very careful to distinguish between these meanings if we're to end up in right thinking instead of in a maze of confusion. Beyond any question, the usage of the phrase law in the text which we are now studying is the first one. There is not the slightest reference here to the law of Moses in either its larger or its narrower usage. This epistle to the Romans is not one which was addressed to Jews upon whom the law of Moses might have seemed to have some continuing claim. This epistle is addressed to Gentiles who were distinctly excluded from any participation in the benefits which were presented to Israel alone. I think that if this fact were more thoroughly understood by Jews today, they would not look so hardly upon us for clinging to our hope in Jesus Christ as the true Messiah. For let's face it, if Jesus Christ is not our Messiah, then let them remember that we have no God, no Messiah, and no hope, and that we are nothing more than the goyim, destined to outer darkness forever. But now, but now, since Christ has died, but now we Gentiles who never, never, never had the law of Moses are saved through grace alone. We are now not under the principle of law, but we are under grace. There are some in the midst of Protestantism who try to put the whole church back under the law of Moses, where it never was at any time in its history. There are those, for example, who wish believers in our age to keep Saturday as the Sabbath, God forbid. The Sabbath, of course, is a Jewish institution. It has been a mark upon that nation as a nation, even as circumcision has been a mark upon the flesh of the individuals of that nation. But those who are saved by God from among the Gentiles, as I and as many of you, 
we are necessarily saved under an entirely different set of conditions. Let me illustrate this by a reference to a passage in the epistle of the Hebrews. There's a whole section in that epistle which explains how the priesthood of Aaron came to a close in order that it might be replaced by another priesthood that is said to be after the order of Melchizedek. The Spirit takes us back to that incident in the life of Abraham where the great patriarch got down on his knees in front of Melchizedek and paid to this king tithes of all the booty which had been taken in the victory over the kings who had captured Abraham's nephew, Lot. The Bible states that when Abraham got down on his knees to this man, that Abraham's children and grandchildren and his seed forever got down on their knees to a priesthood greater than that of the Levites. We read in Hebrews 7, Without all controversy, the less Abraham is blessed by the better, Melchizedek. It then proceeds to state that Levi was in the loins of Abraham when that bowing took place, and that thus Levi was proven to have a priesthood inferior to that eternal priesthood which the Lord God intended to establish forever through the Messiah. The Holy Spirit then argues that logically, if such a change is made, a change so vast that the entire foundation of a divinely given religion is set aside, there must of necessity be the change in the whole legal structure on which the religion was founded and the reestablishment of an entirely new set of principles. I can illustrate this by an example. Suppose that a cataclysmic change should take place in the government of the United States. I can imagine a set of circumstances which would bring such a change to pass. Suppose, for instance, that a series of atomic explosions should wreck our great cities, and that which struck the nation's capital should take the president, the vice president, the speaker of the house, and most of the members of both houses of the Congress. Constitutionally, there is no method devised for meeting such a situation. We will assume, therefore, for the sake of my illustration, that some man with gifts of leadership takes control and, little by little, takes the country into a dictatorship. Now, it's evident that there can be no dictatorship if our present constitution is applied. If, therefore, constitutional government were established under the conditions which I have described, it would mean that there had been the setting aside of our present constitution and the introduction of an entirely new constitution on totally different principles. And this is exactly what the epistle of the Hebrews sets forth. The words used are these in Hebrews 7.12. For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. To paraphrase this in terms of our example from American history, it would be, for the presidency being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the Constitution. And so we summarize the passage as it illuminates our text in Romans. We Gentiles never were under the law of Moses and never could be. We were therefore in a state of total despair, but God has done something about it, brought in a new constitution, a new covenant, a new brith, in which he himself saw to it that the temple was overthrown, the priesthood destroyed, the blood sacrifice abolished, and the door flung open wide for salvation to all and every member of the human race. And under this new covenant, sin shall not have dominion over the children of this covenant, for our relationship to it is not one of men sworn to obey a set of rules. 
but our relationship is that of men made free from any rules whatsoever in order that we may be possessed by the life of the Lord Jesus Christ who comes to us in grace and gives to us freely what we could never achieve by ourselves. Only now, under the new covenant, do we obtain by a free gift that to which we could never attain by any other means. For within our hearts and lives, the Lord Jesus Christ becomes our great high priest, not established by the law of a carnal commandment, as was Levi and his priesthood, but by the power of an endless life through his resurrection from the dead and his triumphant seating in the heavenly places at the right hand of God the Father, far above all principalities and powers, so that from thence he can pour down upon us all of the blessings which have become ours in our union with him. There is all our hope. Christ Jesus the Lord, who occupies the double place of being on the throne of God for us, and in our hearts the hope of glory. And we pray thee that our God, that the message may come to many, many hearts this night. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Sin shall not have dominion over you if you trust completely in the saving work of Christ. You are not under law, but under grace, because Jesus has purchased your spiritual freedom. We hope you've benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled Free from the Law. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse anytime, anywhere around the globe via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at AllianceNet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled Free from the Law or simply request message number R6-30. We'd also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled More Names of God. What's in a name, wrote Shakespeare? When you study the names of God, you will discover a wealth of riches in the knowledge of Him. In this free booklet, Dr. Barnhouse focuses on five of the nearly 400 names of God in Scripture, showing how each name reveals glorious aspects of the Lord's character and attributes. Understanding the names of God will help you know Him better. Ask for your free copy of More Names of God when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from the broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at AllianceNet.org.
Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.